Welcome to episode four, season one of the Everyday Crazy Podcast. It's a weekly podcast delivered every Wednesday, focused on satire, comedy, current events, and tilted worldview. I'm your host, LP Faust, cultural attaché of the stars and ringmaster of the shit show. On this fourth podcast of the first season, humans have always had a strange relationship with food, and somewhere along the way, it morphed into a delicious theater of the absurd. Morgan Spurlock's quest to open his fast food chain, Holy Chicken, which aims to give the customers an honest experience. And Michelin, the madness of perfection. It's crispy grilled satire wrapped in a health halo of irony. So let your inner fat kid out to play. Everyday Crazy is a weekly podcast with new content every Wednesday focused on satire, comedy, tilted worldview, personal experience, and stream of consciousness with your host, L.P. Faust. Welcome to the Everyday Crazy Podcast. I'm your host, L.P. Faust. Humans have always had this strange relationship with food. Maybe it's because food is a basic human need we can never escape. Or maybe it's because food is deeply sensual and the experiences of that sensuality is so deeply personal. What do you think, Carlos? Do you think that's it? Mm -mm, no, no, no. No? I know. Maybe it's just that our inner fat kid really is our own schizophrenic Jiminy Cricket, and it's screaming in our ear to fill our pie hole with biscuits and gravy, then castigates us for How doing dare it. You? I know, man, it's absolutely terrible, but let me tell you something. Biscuits and gravy? They're absolutely freaking awesome. But it's like a once-in-a-year thing that you can eat, because it's like as you're eating them, you can just feel the years getting shaved off with each bite, and it's just mm, so fantastic. Uh-huh. Yeah. Shame. Shame. But you know, we've got some really fucked up things that are happening now. If you stop and think about it, like once upon a time, take McDonald's, for instance. You'd go to McDonald's, a burger was a burger was a burger. They got some beef patties, they just slapped it all together, boom, threw it on the skillet, bang, burger, right? Burger just like you'd get at home, but different. Maybe they salted it more, something like that. However, burger patty at McDonald's now, is it the same thing as home? No, no, no. Absolutely not, Carlos. It's just some weird freaking ectoplasmic whatever the fuck you got. You know what I'm saying? It's just How dare you? I, I hear you, but it's just like the most disgusting thing ever when you stop and think about it, what's inside of it. I think I was reading there's wood filler. Who the hell knows? At any rate, in that same vein, cast your mind back a few years ago, right? We go back in time and we get to Morgan Spurlock. Do we remember Morgan Spurlock? Well, I'll tell you what. <laughs> He's our hero. Morgan Spurlock went and did Super Size Me, the original movie. And in that movie, what he did was he went and took the McDonald's challenge. McDonald's, at some point, had come out and basically said something to the effect of, a person could live off of McDonald's and be okay for 30 days. They would have, I think it was something to the effect of, you'd meet your minimum daily requirements and it didn't have any adverse effects. All Spurlock did was eat McDonald's for 30 days. Did a documentary film of it, and guess what? All of a sudden, he's up in neon lights, and he's just doing his thing over there, right? After that, it launched him to a new career, to a bunch of different things. Well, fast forward to, um, I believe it was last year, Super Size Me 2 was due out. And I'm thinking to myself, well, shit, I gotta go ahead and watch this one, because if Super Size 1 was that good, Super Size 2 could only be 
about as good. And as I'm wandering through Amazon Prime or whatever the other day, all of a sudden, what should pop up but freaking supersize me? And I'm thinking to myself... Anybody uh, having fun around here? Anybody think that this is popcorn time? So I'm getting to watch the sequel here. And it was kind of interesting because he took the next logical step. So if you remember in Super Size Me 1, he was trying to inform and he was trying to do something to get people to move away from McDonald's. In Super Size Me 2, the best way I could describe this film is encapsulated in, the, in his very own words. Sometimes the only way to find the truth and solve a problem is to become part of that problem. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so at any rate, what winds up happening is Morgan Spurlock decides to create his own fast food franchise. <laughs> I'll say that again. Morgan Spurlock decides he's going to go out and create his own fast food franchise. So, uh, I mean, what the fuck? exactly. I was sitting there asking that same question. What was fantastic about it was, and I won't go through the whole process because the reality of the situation is you must watch the film and I'm not going to ruin it for you. However, I will share some really awesome insights into the movie. What's really fantastic about everything is the relationship with food and with health and how much it's changed as far as what the consumer requires or deems to be healthy versus what is marketed to them. At the core of this whole thing, he decides to start a fast food chicken franchise called Holy Chicken. (laughs) And the process of it is really fantastic because he talks to... Bobby Flay, he talks to the owner of the Shake Shack, he talks to a food marketer, he talks to just everybody to try and figure it out. Eventually, he comes up with the concept of, let me go ahead and make some, do something in chicken. And then it kind of goes off the rails from there. And it's fantastic because the consumer's perception of what is healthy has changed. In fact, it's gotten even more crazy and fucked up. I mean, how much crazier could it possibly get, right? Well, let me tell you. What the fuck happened to this world? To begin with, food is an experience, and every person, time after time, said to him, what's most important is your story. That's right, kids. It's the story of the food. So as a result of that, he raises his own flock of chickens. He has to go to a hatchery, start a place called Morganic Farms, raise his own chickens. You start to learn what words like organic, fresh, handcrafted, artisan, what all of these things mean, and the insanity behind it. But I digress. He goes ahead and he raises these chickens and you go and you get to follow his experience because you'd think that going to a hatchery was easy, right? Hey, Carlos, was it that easy? Not at all. Turns out that Big Chicken owns most of it. His biggest nemesis was Purdue. He winds up having to lease a facility over in Alabama, I believe it was. One of the farmers allowed him to use the chicken houses that he's got to raise his chickens. And it's right next to Purdue. And it creates a whole lot of friction and problem inside there. But I digress. Let's get back to to where we were going. He decides to raise his own chickens because of the fact that the food marketer was sitting there saying, dude, you've got a very serious problem because your story right now, after Supersize Me, your association with fast food is going to be really tenuous at best. And he's like, well, I think we should go ahead and do this. And then he says, well, what's important is the story behind this, right? And he's got a whole panel of his his experts around him advising Morgan. So he's like, are your chickens going to wind up being free range? So he goes over and dials up and uh, talks to the FDA about what constitutes free range. And then he starts asking a litany of other questions, such as what constitutes organic? What constitutes this? Comes to find out that there's actually pork inside of his chicken feed that he's he's feeding his chickens because he was trying to label his chickens as vegan. (laughs) Yes, for real. 
Um, but no, they've got pork in them, so he couldn't do that. And all of this is because of what the definition is in the consumer's mind and how marketing has changed and shifted things in the consumer's mind as far as what's healthy. So we shifted from a, a wonderful world of low-cal equals healthy. And instead, providence, origin, uh, full transparency of where these ingredients are sourced from has replaced the conventional idea of what is healthy. So he decides to exploit the shit out of it in his very own restaurant that he's putting together. So as he's putting all of this stuff together, he, he's talking to another marketer. He's like, so let me get this straight. Grilled chicken's not selling. Fried chicken is what everybody wants. But there's no way that I can actually say the chicken is fried and it'll be perceived as healthy. And he's like, you're wrong. The word fried has a negative health halo. And then you got to ask yourself the question, right? I'm sitting here. What the fuck is a health halo? So it turns out that health halos are terms that have become associated with certain products to make it feel healthier. Words like fresh, natural, handcrafted, artisan, made from scratch, fresh cracked eggs, things like that. Health used to be about low-fat and low-cal, but now it's evolved into what types of ingredients you're using, and things are put in a health halo of greenery. Now, the coup de gras, if you will, <laughs> the cherry on top, was when he's like, you can't say fried. Fried is bad. Use crispy instead. So he looks at him, he says, you're telling me I could have crispy grilled chicken? And the dude's like, huh? <laughs> oh, what the fuck happened to this world? So he begins to construct a sandwich and he decides that he's going to make a crispy grilled chicken sandwich. And you got to ask yourself, what the fuck is that, right? Well, it turns out that as they go on later and they get into the food labs and they're building and constructing these things, they take the, this, this chicken that they bred in like uh, potato and panko breadcrumbs, they deep fry it, they then take it and stick it on a panini press, and then from there to add to the perception that somehow this shit is healthy, they paint grill marks onto the damn fucking chicken let me say that again they deep fry it they panini press it and then they paint the grill marks on the chicken <laughs> did i make myself clear because i am not gonna write this shit down so this is of course adding to the health halo of the entire thing <laughs> so as he goes on he actually builds out this restaurant and he decks it out with all of the bullshit greenery that you see in these fantastic dining establishments such as Wendy's and McDonald's and how they're decking everything out with natural stone and natural woods and fake plastic grass. And they've got the wonderful hand, you know, handwriting scrawled across the wall talking about artisan and handcrafted and all that shit. So he does all that, only he discloses everything on his packaging, on his promo, on his advertising. The look on these people's faces as they're sitting there eating and they think they're getting this crispy grilled chicken that's good for them and it's like 1,200 calories. Yeah, they're just absolutely fucking apoplectic. Somebody's mad right now. <laughs> yes, they are. And they're like, oh my God, what the fuck, man? And of course, they stop eating midway and then at some point, it's kind of like, you know, fat kid takes over inside of them and they just dig right the hell back inside there because, I mean, who cares, right? You're going to die anyways. Well, the thing that's really great is in the end of the movie when they're doing the updates. And now Morgan, as he's walking out the door of his establishment, looks at the camera and he says, and if we do this right, I'll be putting both you and me out of business. Update one that comes through four days after they finish filming, 
investors called to franchise holy chicken across the country. <laughs> you heard that right, kids. You heard that right. Franchisees were lining up to go ahead and get on board with Morgan's Holy Chicken. And in fact, if you'd like to go and get an, a, a franchise, you can go to holychickenusa.com and you too can sign up to be part of Morgan Spurlock's Holy Chicken USA franchise. And all I can say is I don't know how long they're going to last or what the purpose is behind them, but it should be very interesting, <laughs> to say the least. What do we think, Carlos? Do we think we want to get a franchise over here? Huh? Would that be a good idea? Yeah, I don't think so. I don't see us getting a franchise. But the better one. <laughs> the absolute better one was the fact that within a month after he had done that, Morgan Spurlock gave a keynote address at a major convention for a restaurant for restaurant industry leaders. Yeah, I'll say that again. <laughs> within one month after they wrapped filming and they had opened up their restaurant, Morgan Spurlock gave a keynote address at a major convention for restaurant industry leaders. I'm Did just... I make myself clear? Uh-huh. Because I am not going to write this shit down. So after watching Morgan Spurlock and getting sucked into a few food porn shows on the Food Network with my daughter, it started to make me think back to some of my own first experiences in fine dining as a kid. My dad, when I was a kid, I remember my first like real fine dining experience. My dad took me down to the Keys with uh, the family and he took us to this place called the Casa Marina Restaurant. And it was just this ridiculously over-the-top place. You know, low lighting, candlelight everywhere. Men have to dress in suit and ties. And, hey, Carlos, when I was a kid, did I like that shit? I mean, no, man. I hated the monkey suit. But I put it on, and we went inside there. I was absolutely fucking blown away when they were making Steak Diane Tableside. I was just sitting there mesmerized. I mean... First, that the, that you've got a guy doing this shit tableside. Second, that he's setting shit on fire in front of you. And third, when it comes off there, it's like incredibly delicious. And I mean, when I was sitting there looking at that fireball go off. Who the was, fuck thinks this is popcorn time? You better believe it, man. I was in that shit like, wow. And so we sat there and we ate that. And I remember my father grumbling whenever they put the freaking lights down there. I was trying to hide shit in my fucking plate. And he'd refer to the broccolis as trees and all that sort of stuff. You know how it is. I mean, he was a grumbly old man at that particular age, but he was cool anyways. Once I went and did that, I got inspired. <laughs> and I got to ask you a question, Carlos. Is an inspired LP a good thing? Yeah, especially as a kid. That was bad. I was like, well, if these dudes can set this shit on fire in a restaurant in front of a table, I'm going to flambe the shit out of everything that comes in here. So we would get like steakums and shit like that, shit bologna and cheese, flambe that shit with a little bit of brandy, you know what I'm saying? And it was like, boom. And eventually it was like, knock it off, man. Yeah, I remember my mom and dad like, hey, hey, knock it off already. I don't want the fucking house to burn down, all right? You know what Did I'm I saying? Did I make myself clear? Uh-huh. Because I am not going to write this shit down. And of course, did LP learn his lesson from no. all of that? Of course not, man. So like later on when I was older and I had my own place to burn down, I decided that I would host Thanksgiving one year. And for some reason or other, my first Thanksgiving, I got ambitious and I was like, you know, it'd be great. Let me invite everybody over. How many was everybody? Oh, about 22 people. Was I prepared for that shit, Carlos? What do you think? No, no, no. I was absolutely not prepared for that shit. But I decided to be like elegant and chefy anyways, right? I don't know why. I was just inspired. And of course, what should come into play but cognac? <laughs> and I'm not talking like that hypnotique blue bullshit that you see over in the clubs and shit like that. I'm talking about legit cognac, and I'm thinking to myself, I'll make like a brandy sauce or something like that. Awesome, right? 
So I went a little bit further and I said, you know what would be really cool? When you get a turkey and you got pan drippings on the bottom, normally you could put like wine or something inside there and really kind of bring the flavor together. Well, why bother with that when we could just throw some brandy in and I'll just cover the turkey with foil? Was that a good idea, Carlos? Absolutely not. I put that shit inside there. Now, alcohol's got a low boiling point, lower than, I believe, uh, water. So it started to boil off as the heat of the oven happened. So vaporized, got caught underneath that thing. And I'm sitting over there trying to, to direct traffic to where people should sit and stuff. And all I hear in the oven is, woof. And I was like, what the fuck was that? <laughs> and I ran over to the oven and I opened the oven. The whole fucking oven's on fire on the inside. So I got to rescue the turkey, pull it out, get the fire extinguisher, put the fire out with the fire extinguisher, rescue the turkey, make sure it doesn't flambe because let me tell you something, man, that shit was on fire. And then after that, I had to clean out the oven, put the turkey back together and stick it back in the oven and put it in there. Hey, let me tell you something. When somebody tells you like, hey, you should get a 30 pound turkey. I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. I didn't know 30-pound turkey was going to take like eight hours to cook. Hey, Carlos, did we know that? Huh? No, no, no. Should we have probably read the directions first? Of course, man. But whatever, man. It worked out fine. That was my fantastic experience for Thanksgiving, trying to be chefy and all that stuff at an early age. And uh, somehow it all came together. I think what happened is I still didn't learn my lesson. I used bourbon later. But that's okay. We can talk about that another time. But it started to make me sit there and think as I'm remembering all of this stuff. I came across this uh, this movie on YouTube. So I was like on a quest to get some obscure recipe for, I don't know, how to roast like uh, cook I have newt or I, I, I forget what it is. So I went on YouTube, of course, because that's where you go. <laughs> Why go to, to read about something when you can watch somebody try to cook it for you and take four times longer, right? Well, that's what I did. And I stumbled across this movie on YouTube called Michelin, The Madness of Perfection. And it was by William Stilwell, the editor of Food Illustrated. <laughs> what it was is that he decided that he wanted to go ahead and dig into what chefs and everything go through in Michelin when they're trying to get Michelin stars. And he was like, you know what the most fucked up thing is, is that Michelin behaves like this crazy ass Illuminati secret society with like anonymity of inspectors and they're guarded at the highest level. And, you know, he when he went to go do the interview with the vice president of Michelin, they wouldn't even let him into the freaking into his office to sit there and interview with him. He's just kind of like, sitting there, the dude, we're in the basement. We're next to the catalogs of like National Geographics and then all the Michelin guides, right? For some reason or other, whenever you go into a basement somewhere where there's storage, everybody has National Geographics. Is this something that's being made up, Carlos? Or is this like, no, this is a fact, man. It's like, for some reason, that shit goes everywhere. It shows up everywhere. It reminds me of when I was in second grade. But I digress. So they're down in there in the basement there, fingering through some of the National Ge Geographics. And he's interrogating him. And he's like, come on, man. Let's get real here. The standard that you guys are setting, it's not like you're going to go out and get go to some guy's lunch truck down the street. He's like, oh, no, no, we just came back from Hong Kong. And we just gave a star to a dim something that isn't a very expensive. He's like, get out of here, man. That's some token bullshit. And they kind of go back and forth for a little bit. Ultimately, what winds up happening is, you know, he doesn't really get anywhere. And he doesn't really get to sit down and talk with any inspectors or anything. And he follows and tracks Marcus Waring, who is sort of a disciple of Gordon Ramsay. And he had just opened his, he first, first he told Gordon Ramsay to go fuck off one evening. And then somebody picked him up and they start, he started his own competing restaurant in a hotel. And he follows the day in the life of Marcus Waring, 
He looks at him. He's like, he's working 16 hour days. He's barking orders at a kitchen. And these guys have these stern faces like they're on fucking Saving Private Ryan. And they're about to raid the beachhead. When in fact, they're just like serving lunch in the afternoon, you know, to a, to a group of people. How dare you? I know that's pretty fucking insensitive, right? But it's true. But it's true. I get that you love your craft. I get that you're passionate, and I absolutely want to see that. I want to see people live their purpose more than anything. Hell, that's why I'm sitting here doing podcasts. I want to live my purpose, just like every other person. And I think there's an artist or something inside of each of us. It's beautiful to watch that. But to sit here and elevate these people on a stage and put them in a place where they're next to, like, world leaders and diplomats and the Lord of Importance, I think it's just a little bit fucked up, don't you? I mean, (laughs) you know, it's just a little fucked up. And that was kind of the point that he was making over here. So to punctuate that point, he's sitting there and there are these women, and I forget what it is. I think he called them something like the chicks of, of Michelin or whatever. But it's this gaggle of women that sit here and promote the living hell out of all these potential Michelin star chefs in a hope that they're going to get their second or third star, and as he or even their first star in some cases. And as he's sitting here talking to this one woman, I can remember listening to her talk to him, and she said something to the effect of, it's the most wonderful and positive call you can make to transform a chef's life, to say you have a Michelin star or a second Michelin star. In fact, one chef several years ago, when going from one star to two stars, was sitting in a cafe at 8 a.m. in the morning with his father waiting for the call. Immediately after they received the news, they went to the Aston Martin showroom. Hey, what the fuck? Dude, the Aston Martin showroom. You just got a star. It's like fucking going to Vegas, and don't get me wrong. It's like, you know, the way that they equate it, it's like winning the Oscars if you get three stars. So when he got two stars, it was something of significance, and I get that. But can we agree that maybe when we're sitting here taking, you know, having three guys work on a sauce that works eight hours, it might be taking it just a little bit too far? (laughs) Just a little bit? (laughs) And it's not even that. They can sit there and do that. But when we're talking about elevating them to the level of celebrity status, dude, you're making a sandwich. (laughs) You could be the best sandwich maker ever. Don't get me wrong, but you're fucking making a sandwich. You know what I mean? How dare you? I know, man. Insensitive. Insensitive. At any rate, so they asked the other woman, what's it like? You hear about these stories of people gaining stars. What about people who lose stars? And she was like, if you're talking a decade ago, the pressures that were there, if you were a three Michelin star chef in France and you lost a star, the restaurant would close and your career was over. And I'm just kind of like sitting there thinking to myself, dude, that's like saying, hey, mathematician, you had a rounding error at the 17th decimal point. You're fired. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Come on, man. I'd be sitting there like a little bit I fucking like ap- apoplectic, and I'd just be Somebody's like, you know. mad right now. Yeah, I'd be fucking mad. I'd be like, what do you mean my career's over? I fucking made a little mistake here. It was a rounding error. And you think about the madness that, that is being driven. I mean, the perfection, the idea of creating an ideal like that for people to achieve is fantastic. But when you have people committing suicide over stars, and there were there were some some chefs that were featured in this that did exactly that. They lost a star and they committed suicide over it. And you look back over in history at what some of the celebrity chefs in Rome did. One of the most uh one of the most famous one, I think it was Gavius Apicius or whatever it was. He wound up killing himself in his kitchen because he had ten million sesteri left over in his account and he thought he was gonna die of poverty. Or you look at Vital, I think it was, the person who was responsible for Chantilly Cream. He committed suicide in the kitchen when Louis XIV and 2,000 guests arrived because the fish arrived late. Killed himself thinking the fish wasn't going to arrive, and then like 20 minutes later it shows up. 
But the madness that it, that drives out of these people is kind of insane. It's beautiful, but it's insane. And so Michelin, it's history. Originally, this guidebook was put together for one reason, and it was to help sell tires. Now, how does a guidebook on fine dining help sell tires, LP? Well, let me tell you how that works out. So Michelin decided to put together this guidebook in the hopes of getting people to drive on the road more. More driving equals more tires sold, and then you have more people that eventually fall in love with the road, get their own cars, increases sales, and so on. So that was really sort of the impetus of why this book was created. But see, in LP's world, I think that Michelin didn't do a good enough job. Well, LP, how on earth would you get Michelin to go ahead and do it? I think they need more guidebooks. I think there's more things in the travel industry that need that level of attention for them to aspire to greater heights. Well, what sort of Michelin guidebooks are? I'll tell you a few of them, right? Let's go with two of them. My first idea for Michelin guidebook, gas station bathrooms. How many times have we sat there and gone over to a place? We didn't know if it was a biohazard zone that somebody just cracked COVID-19, the coronavirus in, right? I mean, have we? do we even know when we walk into these places? Uh, yeah, Carlos, I agree with you. It would be really cool if we could have an inspector go in with a moon suit first, scope the place out, you know, give us a rating, maybe go ahead and take a few swabs and culture samples and all that stuff, and let us know that when we're putting our ass down on porcelain, it's a safe surface for us to go on. Not only that, but it'll be a quality experience and we'll enjoy the aromas that are coming out of there for a change. You know what I'm saying? That would be absolutely perfect. I think that would be a great use for an inspector's time, don't you? How dare you? No, man. Come on. Respect people. I get it. I get it. These are professionals. All right. I got another idea for you. If that one didn't work, how about we go ahead and get a Michelin guide to like fucking tourist traps? Let's go find the place that's got the best mass-produced mistakes. What do we think? Is that a great idea? Like, for me, here's my thought. I would love for a Michelin inspector, he would have saved me an awful lot of time because for some reason or other when I was a kid, my parents always wanted to go to the goddamn Ripley's auditoriums. And we hit all of them. All of them. I think there's like three of them just in Florida alone. And I'll tell you something. I would have felt better had a Michelin inspector gone in and let me know, hey, this one's got the best shrunken head collection. This one's got the best cockroach art. That would have been awesome, right? What do you think? Do you think that would have been a great idea? I think it would have been fantastic. In fact, we need a Michelin guidebook for all of that stuff. Or even better, right? How about the fact that when I go over to uh, to Walt Disney World, I've got options, right? People, all they want is they're like, hey, could you pick me up a souvenir? Do you think I'm going to go over to Walt Disney World and go and grab that $30 shirt? What do you think, Carlos? Mm -hmm, no, no, no. Hell no, man. We're going to go over to the freaking dive that's down the street over on 192 over there and we're gonna say to him uh, oh what you got over there hey i got about 1500 shirts in the back here from the year 2000 we could go ahead and do the millennium celebration and i could cut you a deal well i don't know if that's appropriate sir well how about i do like about 1200 of them for five bucks hey man i'll tell you what you know what everybody's gonna go ahead every birthday every celebration every christmas until those things run out, everybody's getting a year 2000 Walt Disney World shirt. How dare you? I know, man. I should be more more sensitive to those things, shouldn't I? But those would be fantastic uses of Michelin inspectors. At least that's what I think. <laughs> well, kids, that's all there is this week. There is no more. If you like the podcast, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. After all, you need to do your part to make sure LP is an unsuitable candidate for public office. And the only way that we can do that is to make sure that everybody has a copy of this podcast downloaded on their listening device. I'll catch you next week with another episode of Everyday Crazy.
Everyday Crazy is a weekly podcast released every Wednesday here on Anchor. The podcast is distributed and will appear across Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Breaker, CastBox, Overcast, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public. Don't forget to check out the companion playlist on Spotify created for each episode of Everyday Crazy. On Spotify, you can find playlists from Everyday Crazy, my not-a-radio-show-radio-show-joculation, and Voices from the Mountains. It's the mix of punk rock, satire, and comedy just the way nature intended. Just click on the Spotify link in the show notes to access all this content and LP's liked songs so you can listen, mix, match, and build your own playlists. You can also check out the Everyday Crazy podcast on SoundCloud, along with additional original content such as original parody and satirical commercials created by LB. Just click the link in the show notes to access all this content and check back for periodic updates. You can stay up to date with all things LP Faust by following on Twitter at FaustLP or Facebook at RealLPFaust. If the written word is more your thing, check out my blog on Steemit. Just go check out steemit.com and type in at LP Faust in the search bar. Or better yet, just leave me a message on Anchor. You can download the Anchor app, find the Everyday Crazy Show, and tap on the message button. Your message might even wind up on a future podcast. William Shakespeare once said, all the world's a stage. As we strut and fret on the stage of life, always be sure to ask yourself, why watch the show when you can be the show? <laughs>